Welcome to FinTech. What the heck? I'm your host, Andrew Carpenter. This is the podcast all about FinTech and the future of data. Today, I'll be talking about the lessons we learned from Intrinio's biggest failures. You'll hear from one of Intrinio's senior software engineers, Evan Hyde, about what goes into building a real-time data integration. I'll also be interviewing the CEO of Preventor, Jaime Ramirez, about how his company is tackling financial crime risk management. I'm going to ramble a little bit about failure. Um, this is a common topic for startups of all kinds um, and probably large companies as well. But in particular, um, startups talk about failure quite a bit. And uh, most startups fail. So I guess that's um, apropos, apropos, talking about failure in enunciation. Um, but we uh, at Intrinio, I've been here about six years, seven years, maybe longer if you count the um, informal days where we were just trying to decide if we wanted to be a company or not. Um, I've been here for all those years, and I have had and been a part of proudly numerous, numerous failures. And um, I'll say something. This isn't my idea, but this is something that you pretty much if you read any literature about founding a business or startups or anything like that, everyone's going to say the biggest failure is failing slow. And, um, they'll say this catchword is fail fast. So I actually wrote a poem about failure and it's in my poetry book, A Roll in Bed with Honey, which is available on Amazon. That's not what we're here to talk about. So my poem is how not to be really wrong long. And it goes, if you admit you're wrong often, you won't often be wrong long. If you aren't often wrong long, you won't often be really wrong. If you're a little wrong often, you aren't often really wrong long. And the moral of that poem is that failure is expensive, especially for startups. You're spending money on staff. You're spending time. The whole idea of a startup is to get rich quick. And if it takes a long time, well, you're just not getting rich quick. You might as well just go get a normal job. So you got to find that uh, product market fit and that scaling solution and the right mix of marketing and sales and product for your business. You got to find it fast. If you don't find it um, quick enough, you're failing slow. And so what startups often embrace, and Intrinio has a value of embracing failure, is the idea that just try it. Go for it. See if it works. It's, you know, you might not know what you're – like a bigger company would say, let's do you know, six months or 12 months of research and market fit analysis and talk to customers, potential customers. We'll hire a marketing company to, to do surveys. You don't have time for that if you're a fintech startup. So you got to fail fast. And um, – Another saying that one of our advisors told me recently was that it's better to um, be wrong today than right in two weeks, which um, I can't claim that quote, but I definitely agree with it. And so Intrinio tries, uh, tries things all the time. We try marketing approaches. We change our pricing, um, and we have been doing this for years, even changing our business model. So um, I'm just going to talk briefly today about a few of our failures and um, and kind of like uh, the way we think about failure. And for me, failure has become um, about an evolution. You're not necessarily going to be right forever. Like right and wrong are things that change over time. Like what's right for your business when it's very small might not be right for your business when it's big. And we talk about scaling that way. And um, if you're going to scale, the thing that's right for your business that was working to get you to the last level might not scale you to the next level. And so 
something that was right becomes wrong. And something that is wrong uh, when you're small might become right when you're big. And that's a very hard concept to get used to because as humans, we just want to be right. We don't want to have to think about it. We don't want to have to change. Change is very hard. Um, so uh, one of the most important lessons that I've learned uh, in a startup life, besides failing fast, is that um, right and wrong are time-bound. Your company, what is right for them, might be... Um, not right later and vice versa. So uh, let me talk about a print mailer that we did. Uh, we literally mailed um, print cards to uh, individual households to try to get them to buy financial data from us in the very early days. Uh, I think we put an ad in a popular magazine as well. We thought, oh boy, this is going to do it. And it was uh, expensive and time consuming um, and resulted in some very interesting marketing language. And it was a complete and utter failure. And that was not one of those things that is time out. <laughs> uh, that was just wrong. And it's, I don't think we would try it again today. Um, but thousands and thousands of people got a piece of mail from Internio that said, hey, would you like some financial data? And I'm sure that they were all very confused. Um, and for us, uh, we are, we the lesson was to focus on a very narrow market. And we don't necessarily have their addresses of that narrow market. Um, so maybe if that was more targeted, it would work better. Um, and here's a let me give another example of something that was right for us for a while and then wasn't right later on. So in Trinio used to, in the very early days, I was kind of involved with HR, I run HR now at Trinio, but in the very early days, um, you know, we were just starting to have salaries and just starting to have a team and to have an office and things like that. And before that, there were no salaries and working on couches. Just when we started getting to that point, we started saying, okay, maybe we should have some HR policies. One of the very first policies that a company needs to have to attract talent is a PTO policy. And we thought, we were being super innovative and creative. We said, we're going to have unlimited PTO. Cool. And then that'd be a way to attract talent. And it was in the early days. A lot of our, um, our longtime employees came on when we had unlimited PTO and that worked for a while. And one of the main reasons why it worked was that we really didn't matter what our PTO policy was when we were that small. Um, either your people are engaged and interested in working for the business and super driven and excited, um, to work for you, uh, or you're going to fail it. And the PTO policy, probably doesn't impact those high performing rock stars that you need at the beginning of your business. So unlimited PTO was great for a few years and it started to stop working in the parlance of startups. We, we would say it didn't scale. We started getting more employees and management structure and, um, and the new staff didn't have quite the same level of engagement. We've got great, every, everybody's great, but um, you know, they wanted more certainty, more understandable, human resource policy for PTO. And so what we did is we actually changed from unlimited PTO to giving folks sick leave and a very generous PTO um, allotment that they earn throughout the year, which is also more common throughout the, the industry. And we just gave a lot of PTO, but um, that worked when we got bigger because it gave folks more clarity um, who needed more clarity on how many days should I be taking off? Because with the unlimited PTO policy, you can kind of run in at the larger scale to this idea that, hmm, is the culture that it's unlimited, meaning you can never take it? Um, and we actually set up our PTO to um, a, only a small amount of it to roll over to encourage people, yes, we need you to take breaks um, and prevent yourself from burning out. So um, another mistake that we made throughout the years was that 
um, a few years ago, we were running a marketplace and we decided that we would try to build some software to help power marketplaces. And it was a huge idea. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to go all over the place. There was like network effects and we would be a marketplace of marketplaces. And I've talked about um, how there's been a proliferation of financial data marketplaces. And we thought we'll create software that will um, enable anyone in maybe inside of their business to have their own marketplace. Say you run a large company, you have thousands of analysts and they need different data sets. This would be a way to kind of catalog and source and distribute those data sets. We just set to work on it. This big de- development team and, and it was a colossal failure. It didn't work. Um, we never finished it. We got going on it. And then all of a sudden, a lot of other companies started doing the same idea. Amazon is a, the, the largest competitor that's now running their own marketplace. And we realized that this wasn't really our core competency. We were a data company from the beginning. This big flashy idea kind of distracted us. And, um, and because of that distraction, it was kind of a waste of time and we should have failed faster on it. Um, so that was another one of our failures. And then um, one of those failures that was time bound uh, was that we started off our business selling to anybody. We would sell to individuals and students, startups, businesses, you name it. And when we were very small, we didn't have a lot of marketing presence. We hadn't figured everything out yet. Um, selling to anybody was great because you were just kind of learning who can we sell to? Who needs this data? Like what is the right pricing structure? And so for the first four plus years of our business, we sold to individuals. Well, as we got bigger, we started to realize that financial data for individuals is a really tough because they have such a small budget for data and curating and collecting and ensuring infrastructure is up and things like that is very expensive. It is uh, really challenging to run a data business where you sell to individuals. You know, in Trinio, you know, you can license data to different folks to let them sell it to individuals. But if you're a pure data creator, uh, it's a tough, tough go to sell to individuals. So what we did at the time, we pivoted. We said we'll sell our data to individuals and businesses and focus on the businesses. And that worked for a while because we're still bringing in some of those, the high volume of lower priced individual accounts um, while you're also focusing on the smaller volume of high priced accounts. But um, in recent years, we realized focus was important. And we realized that that was a failure again, even though it was successful at the time. Um, it's kind of uh, hard to just list all your fail- failures over and over, but uh, I'll list one more. Um, when it comes to financial data, we learned the hard way that not all data sets are created equal. And this is one of the challenges of being a financial data provider is that you really can make a data set about just about anything if you want to. And when we ran a marketplace, we had hundreds and hundreds of data sets. We were adding new data sets every month. But the value of a data set is not... Um, of data sets is not even, not all data sets are created equal or as valuable. So as a business, creating data sets that aren't that valuable is not a good business strategy. And so we went wide instead of deep. And what we've found over time is that that is an overextension, um, kind of a distraction for us would be to say like, it's better to be really good at a small number of data sets that are for uh, multiple reasons, super valuable, and they're going to be super valuable for a long time. And then to add value, keep adding um, new fields and new calculations and improving data quality in those data sets and be an expert at those and think very carefully before you add new data sets. Because um, 
at the time, our bit, our thought was every new data set, new revenue, bigger company. If you can keep growing the data sets you've got, add new data sets that sell just as well. Wow. That's an exponentially growing company, but that was a failure. We didn't, um, realize maybe naively that, um, all data sets are not created equal. So in addition to failing fast, I think the best, uh, lesson that I've learned is that, um, quality, not quantity is really, really important for most businesses. There's always going to be some unicorns that get scale with hundreds of millions of users paying a dollar a piece, but um, that is only going to be a handful of companies. And that's actually kind of a distraction for most companies. It's probably better to have fewer higher paying clients um, that um, for your business and not overextend. So you can really focus on your core competencies and what you're good at. My internal guest today is Evan Hyde. He's a senior software engineer and the head of Internio's real-time integrations. Welcome to the show, Evan. Thank you, Andy. This is the first time I've been on a podcast, so let's have some uh, fun. Yeah, I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, do you want to just tell everybody uh, where you are and who you are and how you came to work for Internio? Sure. Um, yeah, I guess I'll give a little bit of background. Uh, I'm Evan. Uh, I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm actually a Colorado native, but I spent some time elsewhere. I uh, went to school out in Philadelphia, spent some time in Seattle as well. Uh, I think my first job was at IBM, um, did some software development there. Uh, then I was at Microsoft doing um, some program management. And then I had a, a startup um, that I ran for a while that specialized in or that focused on doing um, some machine learning as it applies to uh, internal combustion engines. We were combining um, machine learning and analytics, um, real time um, data processing uh, with these ultra high performance electrohydraulic fuel injectors. Um, to create a, a engine that would sort of teach itself how to run. Um, and when that didn't work, then I came to Intrinio. As it turns out, uh, the sort of real-time data that you focus on with uh, internal combustion engines, it's all time series data, is very similar to the kind of data that we use when we're doing um, like real-time uh, processing of stocks, um, stock prices, option prices, things like that. It's all time series data. Uh, and you can use the sort of the same, I guess, development paradigms or the same programming data structures, um, a lot of the same focuses uh, in order to do both of them. I think I've been at Intrinio now for just over two years. Uh, and the problems that I see every day are constantly changing. And um, the projects that I work on, I think there have been sort of like three of them. <laughs> three big projects uh, that's always changing and providing like very interesting things to work with and work on every day. Yes. <laughs> and we love that we're your fallback from the AI machine learning engine. Um, can you tell our audience a little bit um, about what it takes to make a real time integration? Like, Probably most people listening are interested in fintech and they have websites and stuff and maybe some of them use stock prices. But like if you could just talk a little bit about actually what's going on with real time stock prices, like at the as the person who is actually creating the plumbing, like what is 
happening there. Oh, okay. Well, that's a fairly involved question. Um, I think, I think the best way to like explain it would just be to start at the beginning. So data is generated by different exchanges. Um, and there are lots of exchanges out there. I'm sure people have heard of uh, NASDAQ. Um, some people may have heard of IX, uh, NYSE. These are all just different exchanges. And all of these exchanges are allowing individuals to trade uh, securities. It's like an eBay auction, basically. Um, there, where as the product that you're buying on eBay, you know, maybe, you know, a sticker or a car or something. Um, in this case, you're buying ownership of a company, you know, a fractional ownership piece of a company. Uh, I'm talking now about like securities markets, uh, not options markets. Uh, but in these exchanges, yeah, you're buying these little ownership pieces. Uh, and every time um, one of these transactions or every time one of these uh, ownership stakes changes hands, um, that gets tracked uh, and logged. Um, also, every time someone puts in a bid, for example, like just on eBay, like you put in a bid, you say, hey, I'm willing to pay $80,000 for this Porsche or whatever the case may be. Um, that's a bid. Or the person on the other side may say, you know, what? I'm looking for a uh, to receive a minimum of $75,000. The same thing happens in these exchanges as well. Uh, there are asks and bids um, as well as trades. When a buyer and a seller come to an agreement, a trade happens, um, and you're going to see that. Uh, so a lot of information is generated on these exchanges um, with asks and bids and trades. And there's, uh, it's happening constantly, or at least during market hours. Well, this information gets sent to a data center. Um, the pastor Dana, I think it's New Jersey or something, um, where we connect to it. Uh, a lot of routing happens so that it ends up on a server that we control. And we process this data. Uh, for us, that means filtering out some information. We're providing uh, just top of book data. So that means like only uh, the latest trade, or excuse me, only the latest asks and bids um, or the national best bid and best offer. Um, we're not providing any sort of depth of book to our customers. Uh, but we are consuming all this data. We're gonna, we do a lot of the uh, best bid and best offer um, processing or filtering uh, operations ourselves um, on our servers. So we receive the data, do some sort of transformation with it, make sure the data is clean, um, that we're not passing back stale data, things like that, um, capturing uh, other value-add metrics like high price, low price. Uh, we do some other stuff with options as well. Uh, and then we also have to make this data available to our customers because our customers want to be able to consume uh, this information um, and work with it. We don't do a lot of work with the data. We just give it to other people. They do the interesting stuff. So once we have the data, we can distribute it then to our customers in a number of different ways. And our customers consume the data specifically in two ways. Uh, the first is through a REST-based API. Um, that's a, sort of a request response um, type of application. They can query a, a URL and then they receive a response back with information like um, the latest trade for Microsoft, you know, what that latest trade was or what the ask and the bid price are at that very moment for Apple. Uh, that can allow them to do any number of things. If they're creating a trading platform, uh, that allows them to provide that pricing information to their users so they know where and how to execute 
their orders. Um, or if they're simply doing like display purposes, uh, using data for display purposes, you know, they can then put that information up on their website. Uh, we also provide information to customers via uh, a WebSocket. Um, and that's a, not unlike the request response thing that is the REST-based API, um, the WebSocket uh, provides constant streaming updates. It provides all of the update, uh, all of the updates in real time, um, and constantly. You should say, for example, "Hey, I want to listen to all of the updates from Microsoft," um, and then boom, you're going to be receiving every single update for Microsoft, uh, whether that's you know a trade, an ask, or a bid, and it's just going to keep coming in until you tell the connection to close. Um, we have to yeah do all of this uh, and provide access to everyone that wants it, hundreds of customers, regardless of what platform they choose. Some people may want every single piece of information, regardless of whether it pertains to Microsoft, Apple, or any of the approximately 11 to 12,000 um, securities that are trading on like an IEX or a MIMEX exchange at any given point. So that's a very long-winded explanation of sort of what we do or what I do. Yeah. Well, to me, it, it, it'll keep intruding you in business because if that long-winded answer, all those different pieces, the access, the connection, um, you know, cleaning up of the data, if people weren't getting that data from Intrinio, they'd have to have their own Evan, wouldn't they? Like somebody on their end that's doing all this work. It's, it's kind of a full-time job, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's nuts. It, the fact that it takes like us a long time to get one of these connections stood up and pumping data or consuming data is a testament to just how difficult and how many distributed man hours would go into it if every single one of our customers had to go through the same pain in the ass process that we did. <laughs> um, so we make it easy, or at least that's the plan. You know, that's the idea is we make it easy. You know, customers put in an API key and press connect and boom, like that, suddenly they're connected to the WebSocket. That's it. Um, instead of going through the you know, 10,000 lines of code, um, and uh, it feels like a very political process, like getting established, getting connections, getting approvals with the different exchanges, getting all of the direct connect links stood up. I mean, you have to work with uh, the um, individuals that actually like own uh, the on-premise hardware, all the networking connections to the exchanges themselves. You gotta work with, for example, AWS to get that your direct connect link between you know your virtual private cloud and this like on-premise um, network uh, in New Jersey configured and working properly. There's a lot that goes into it, and it's it can be quite right. frustrating and very time-consuming. So you know we've done it once. We do it like you know it takes our time, but then once we have this working, then our customers you know can get their system set up in what should be a matter of minutes. Right. I like to say it's the difference between buying a plane ticket and starting to build your own plane. Um, you know, you're already taking off right out of the gate rather than having to start studying how to make a plane. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the new products that you've been building? By the time this podcast comes out, uh, we'll have released a, a new feed that combines stock exchanges. Can you talk a little bit about um, that process of combining data from multiple exchanges and why that's advantageous? All right. So the latest yeah, product that we've been working on 
um, is a feed that combines information from multiple exchanges. Specifically, we're starting out uh, by combining um, data from IEX and the MIMEX exchange. Um, the impetus for doing this was to create a sort of lower cost, but very high quality data feed, something that would mimic uh, a, a SIP feed. Um, a SIP feed is a combination of, exchange, of data from lots of different exchanges. Uh, it has very tight, um, very strong data. When I say like very strong data, what I mean is that it very accurately reflects the state of the market. So if you see in a SIP feed that Apple's trading at, you know, whatever the price may be, 120 something bucks, like that's what the price is going to be for Apple. Um, but it's very expensive. Um, and very difficult to get access to a SIP feed. There's lots of approval that needs to be done, uh, lots of forms that need to be signed, and lots of money that needs to be paid. Our hypothesis is that you can create uh, a feed that very closely mimics um, a SIP feed, but um, without the same rigorous approval processes and at a far lower cost. Uh, and so that's what our combined feed is. Uh, Technically, what we have to do is we have to take data coming from multiple sources. Um, the data may or may not be uh, in sync. That means, for example, a trade that happens on the IEX feed um, may come uh, may come in after a trade that actually um, executed after um, uh, a trade on the MIMEX feed. That may sound kind of confusing, but let's just say trades can come in out of order. Same thing with asks and bids. Uh, we also have to be able to manage um, a best bid and best offer system. Um, so, for example, uh, you always want to see um, what the uh, the best bids are and the best offers. Like, if let's go back to our eBay analogy. I don't really care if I'm selling an item on eBay. Um, I don't really care what the lowest offers are for that item. I just care what the best ones are. Um, you know, what, who's willing to pay the highest price for this object that I'm willing to sell? Same thing from a buyer's perspective. Um, I don't really care, like, uh, who's trying to sell their product uh, at the most expensive price. I just care about the least expensive. And so we filter out all that information for you so that you're always seeing um, the best offer and the best bid. So in that case, like, uh, the best bid, bid would be the highest bid, and it would be, um, you know, the lowest ask price. Uh, so being able to do that and do that continuously while trades are coming in out of order uh, is not technically, um, it's not the, a simple problem. Uh, it does mean caching values um, and being able to look through uh, data quickly to see whether or not, and older data, to see whether or not you actually have the best option. Then you have to also take into account what happens, okay, when they clear the books. Like let's say IX clears the books and the asks and bids goes to zero. I mean, you don't want to show zero as an ask or a bid value. Um, so you then have to go back and say, okay, what was the uh, the best value prior to that point? Um, and then publish that out as well. I mean, these are some like small technical pieces, but there's a lot that goes into providing good, solid, accurate data that does very closely uh, mimic the SIP feed um, while doing it in real time. Yeah, it's extraordinarily complicated, um, but at the end of the day, it just amounts from the for the customers because they've got you sitting in between all of this and handling all those complex problems. At the end of the day, what does it mean for them? It means they can get a, a feed with more volume at a lower cost? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what it means. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
And yeah, so, they get better data for less money. And I mean, isn't that what we all want? Is just more for less? Right. Value is the word for it. Um, yeah, there we go. You, yeah. Would you be able to add more feeds to this eventually if needed? Is there sort of like a, um, a diminishing return to adding more exchanges to a, a, a feed like this? Hell yeah, we can add more. That's actually like part of like the uh, the design of the product is that we need to be able to add as many feeds as possible. The second part of your question, I don't know. Um, the hypothesis is that adding more feeds will improve data quality, as it should, right? I mean, the closer we get to actually being the SIP feed, the better, the closer we can be um, to mirroring its data. Um, I have a feeling, though, that there is some sort of uh, plateau function as the, with the more feeds you add, um, the harder and harder it is to actually add more value, sort of the law of diminishing marginal utility. I think you business guys would say something like that. Parsimony. That's the word. That's a, another good word. Look at your vocabulary. See, this is what happens when you're an engineer. You just lose all of that. That's a statistics term. Like when you're building a predictive model, you can get better predictions by adding more predictive variables, but you lose parsimony and generalizability and you end up overfitting the model. So same same thing here is that like once you have five, six, seven percent of market volume on your consolidated feed, does adding eight percent make a difference? Like what if you had 50% market volume? How much impact would going to 51% have? And I think the theory is that there is a not a linear relationship between um, adding volume to a feed and the proximity you get to the national best bid, best offer. So I guess we're going to find out. Absolutely. That's sort of the next thing on the agenda is yeah. to <laughs> qualify these statements. Can you uh, tell our listeners about how far into the fall are you still able to ride a motorcycle in Colorado? Oh, that's one of the greatest pieces about Colorado is you can ride a motorcycle damn near year round. Um, a lot of people, well, actually, I, I think anyone that's been to Colorado knows that we have some insane number of days of sun. I know it used to be like we had the most sunny days a year. So even in the middle of winter, it's not going to be snowy. It's going to be sunny. And you can hop on a bike and just go into the mountains. I mean, yeah, as long as you haven't had a snowfall recently or, you know, and you got to make sure there's not a lot of gravel on the roads from the uh, the gravel trucks that uh, lay it down after a snowfall. But you can ride pretty much your own. I actually prefer riding in like the fall and winter um, as opposed to uh, in the summer just because it's not as hot. God, I hate the heat on a bike. It's <laughs> air conditioning in a car is so nice. That's brutal. Um, well, you're, uh, you're a super talented engineer and uh, living in the right place for riding motorcycles. Thanks for coming on the show, Evan. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. My guest today is Jamie Ramirez, founder and CEO of Preventor. That's Preventor.com, a financial crime and risk management platform. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. Well, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself to get started and how you um, ended up starting Preventor. I've been working on, on the financial industry and IT for the last 30 years or more, and the last four years of Preventor. 
uh, one of the reasons that uh, we found Preventor is that um, we identified that the the current identity, the digital identity uh, industry is outdated and broken, right? We need to present a, a, a proof of identity uh, every time that uh, we want to, to prove who we are. Uh, most of the time, a plastic, either a driver's license or any identity. So, so one of the, the main reasons that we we build Preventor is to to help a financial institution to have a good solution on, on the cloud, basically. And what kind of problems do folks run into if they, if they don't have a solution like that? Like, why would someone need a, a cloud-based digital identification solution? Well, that's a that's a good question. I mean, before before pandemic and all these problems that we currently all the war is having, um, the digitalization start uh, a tendency that uh, most of the business will need uh, that need. Um, to, to do business over the the internet, uh, but after the pandemic or during the pandemic, this this need is is not only a wish; it's a requirement. Uh, most of the business, especially financial institutions, but any other business, will require to do uh, to do business over the internet. So the only way to to know who you are dealing with is to basically identify the person correctly to make sure that the person who says that it is. Is, is the person and is not somebody else. Yeah. Intrinio has tons of remote yeah. employees and we're hiring remote workers and working with contractors and clients all over the place. So it makes sense to me, especially since the pandemic, that you would need a, a, good, yeah, a good solution. Um, can you talk a little bit about the features of Preventor? Like what are all the different, um, I've checked out your website, like what are the different types of things that you could provide to a company that needed to make sure that they were, who they were working with was who they said they were? Yeah, Preventor, what we do is that we have an end-to-end, um, end-to-end life cycle management of, of the customer from the onboarding up to, to verify the, the, the the transactions and, and, and the financial behavior of the customer. But uh, one of the main differences between Preventor and others are that we not only do the digital identity verification at the onboarding time for, for customers, but we also can provide like an ongoing authentication, meaning that a post onboarding, the, the customer can authenticate themselves for different uh, transactions for authorizations. Right. Normally, this kind of a transaction is uh, they send you an OTP password through your SMS phone or an email with a code. So all those those steps can be avoided and can be very easily authenticated with the face recognition. Um, after that, we can also verify that the person against the, the sanctions list uh, not only as a anti-money laundering uh, sanctions list, like uh, make sure that uh, the customer or the person that you are going to do business with is not on the um, on the sanctions list of uh, terrorists, narco-traffic, uh, corruptions, etc. And then we can do the whole uh, entire uh, fraud prevention for the customer, like uh, know your customer, know your business, transaction monitoring, etc. 
And this is all done in the cloud. This is a cloud-based solution. Is there a, a reason or an advantage to why you built Preventor that way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely is um, it's a cloud-based, meaning that the, the the customer doesn't need to install anything on their premises. Is uh, zero maintenance. You know, it's like um, uh, it's a service through the internet. The integrations are very easy, uh, and, and the main the main reason that I, that has been in the cloud base is that a, a small businesses especially can afford to have a nice have a nice solution uh, that normally they they cannot afford it. No, it's very expensive to to have this type of technology or this type of functionality on as a as a, as a software on your on your computer room on your servers. And you do you have you have clients in all over the world? I suppose you support clients in Europe and South America and the United States, um, pretty much anywhere because it's cloud based. Do you see big differences in the needs of clients in different regions of the world in terms of fraud prevention? Well, definitely, yes. There is a different uh, in kind of uh, regulations per jurisdictions per countries, uh, but are we working on the international standards, which basically are very similar to all of them. Some of the countries, they have uh, different uh, requirements, which can be configured on the, on the platform. Um, uh, but we, we follow the, the international standards you know, for anti-money laundering, for, um, for digital identity, for privacy, etc. I see. So a big part of the benefit that you get is catching fraud and stopping things like that, but it also helps your business to be compliant with the requirements that international or different countries have. Exactly. Um, normally, the, when you say about, when you hear the terms of fraud prevention or anti-money laundering or, or cybersecurity, you immediately, you know, link that solution to something that uh, is going to help you to prevent. It's more like a cost than to get businesses, but at, in today, the digital identity is not only to to prevent fraud, to prevent losses in your business, but also to gain customers, to increase your 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 clientele, to increase your 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 target market. Basically, if you provide services um, over, over the internet, and you can have the all the digital identification uh, verification and everything in place. Your target market could be any any country, right? Wow, yeah, that's this is a new topic for me. I'm not a I'm on I do financial data, so it's interesting for me to think about that. That there's probably companies out there who could be selling to certain customers, but they don't because they have no way to verify that they're they're real good customers. And so if they're using Preventor, you could verify a customer pretty much anywhere and allow that business to actually grow. Exactly. Uh, our database uh, covers more than 9,700 different uh, type of government issues IDs in, from 248 countries in 138 languages. So basically, we are here in Miami, but, um, but uh, we can verify the identity of any person from any place. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I love that. I love that it gives you the ability to 
to tell folks who want to use Preventor that this could actually make you money rather than being just something, a hoop you have to jump through. You could end up selling to a client who knows where that you never would have found. That makes so much sense. So why did you pick Miami for your headquarters? Well, Miami is my my home location for the last 30 years. <laughs> Plus, there Miami, I think geographically is very convenient. It's a... Um, I mean, we say in Miami that we are close. We are the the the, the closer place to United States because Miami is considered not to be like a, the regular uh, United States state. Right. <laughs> we are close to Latin America and and we are close to to Europe or to any other um, any location, you know. And and lately, the, the last the, the last couple of years, Miami is considered also the. the 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 tech hub, no, the, for startups. Yeah, I love that. It gives you that access to a lot of different markets and a lot of different talent and a lot of a lot of different clients. That makes a, a lot of sense. What do you think is coming next in this the financial crime and risk? You know, financial risk management space. Like, where is this industry going to go in the next five years? I mean, I think the pandemic's probably supercharged it. So, what's on the horizon? What is Preventor going to be building next? Yeah, I think that we are at the beginning of the digitalization, uh, really. Um, this kind of um, identify individuals is, we are in the very beginning. Uh, I think that that was coming, coming to the streamline and, and to automate the onboarding for entities, for businesses, to do the, the complete uh, transaction over the internet and I think that uh, in the next, I don't know, five years or sooner or later, but um, definitely I will say that um, most of the businesses will be done remotely. Yeah, and that's just going to drive the the need to be able to know who you're working with and to prevent some sort of crime or bad actors. It's only going to get bigger. You you think that uh, this will be needed by, by a bank? Or by a financial institution when you open an account or you want to do uh, any type of those transactions. But uh, really, this this technology is needed by by anything, even by a restaurant, because there is a lot of losses too in, in, in the restaurant industry. Uh, to to rent a scooter here in Miami downtown, you know, you you rent the scooters all the time, so you need to know who who is taking your scooter. So. For an Uber driver, you need to know who's your passenger. You know, so it, it, there is a lot of uses cases. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And uh, you, I'm always hyper focused on finance because we're that's the industry I'm in. But you read stories about not mm-hmm. knowing who an Uber driver is, not knowing who the passenger is, and uh, people sharing accounts like on different all kinds of software platforms. So. Um, if the world is going to be increasingly digitized, there's no doubt in my mind that there's going to be an increasing need for Preventor. So um, that's Preventor.com if you want to check it out. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for joining me for this episode of FinTech What the Heck. Thanks to our sponsor, Intrinio, a financial data partner for innovators in finance. You can learn more at Intrinio.com. I'm Andrew Carpenter, and I'll see you next time for more of what's new in fintech.